Good morning. Thank you. 41 years ago this morning, I was on Skopelos. It's an island in the Aegean Sea just off the coast of Greece. Uh, I was in the midst of what turned into uh, about a six-month self-guided tour bumming around Europe. And uh, my time on Skopelos was one of the highlights. <clears throat> it was two weeks before Easter. And in those two weeks, I think I bought myself one meal. The rest of the time it was, you come, eat, drink, dance. And I did. It was wonderful. Uh, and every night for two weeks, I went to the Greek Orthodox Church in the village for services. Uh, of course, I didn't understand a word that they were saying. <laughs> but I knew what they were doing. They were celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it was beautiful. I understand you all have been looking at the gospel according to Mark recently. And most of Mark, like most of the other gospels, is taken up with the events of Jesus' first coming, especially his death, burial, and resurrection. Text we want to look at this morning in Mark chapter 13 is different. Here, Jesus speaks of his coming again. Chapter 13, verses 24 through 37. Hattie's going to read it for us now. Mark chapter 13, verses 24 <clears throat> through 37. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for just a moment. Dear God, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts and minds would be acceptable to you now. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us, I pray, as we consider your word. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I want to talk about what living in between the first coming and the second coming of Christ should be like. Thankfully, in this passage, Jesus doesn't tell us not to celebrate Easter. But what he does emphasize here and in the other Gospels 
is that our lives are supposed to be shaped more by the anticipation of his second coming than they are by the celebration of the first. But that's hard to do, isn't it? For a couple of reasons, not the least of which is we've been waiting for that second coming for a long time already. 1983, we were living in Minnesota, and we decided to spend the holidays with my wife's family in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. So we loaded up our car. We had a Chevy Chevette. They don't make those anymore for a good reason. With our two children at the time, and we headed north and west to Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. The first 1,100 miles went by pretty quickly. But the last 300, I ran out of gas in more ways than once. Uh, all told, the drive took me 24 hours, staying awake and driving, only stopping for food, gas, and a restroom break occasionally. Personal record, right? You impressed by staying awake for 24 hours driving? That's nothing. We've been waiting for the second coming of Christ for over 2,000 years now. Verse 30 in the passage that Hattie just read has long been a source of controversy. <clears throat> Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Uh, I am, some of you know, a big C.S. Lewis fan. Lewis was wrong in his understanding of this. He wrote an essay years ago called The World's Last Night, in which he argues an old idea, it wasn't original to him, that Jesus thought that he was coming back soon, and he was just wrong. Well, I want to tell you that it was Lewis that was wrong. It's not Jesus that's wrong here. Uh, at the beginning of Mark 13, the passage we just read, Jesus and his disciples are going into the temple, and one of them says, Lord, look at the buildings. Look at all these stones stacked on one another. Aren't they huge? Aren't they impressive? And Jesus says, do you see these buildings? There will not be left one stone stacked upon another. And the disciples are appalled, and they say, when, Lord, when will this happen? Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And Jesus' answer in verse 30, quite straightforwardly, this will happen in your lifetime. And so it did in 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed the temple. But the destruction of the temple by the Romans, as amazing and apocalyptic as it was, it's just a foreshadowing of something greater, of God's judgment of all mankind and of the second coming of Christ himself. We're reminded in verse 32 that nobody knows when that will happen. Not the angels, not the sun, not any of those people that write books telling you when they think it's going to happen in the end. Only the Father knows, Jesus says. But this is something that we're to be alert for. We're to long for. 
we are to pray for, just we did, just as we did just a moment ago. We pray the Lord's Prayer, and we pray, let your kingdom come. What are you asking for? Victory in the next election? <laughs> I hope not. The kingdom only comes when the king returns. I prayed the Lord's Prayer the week before I got married, but I didn't mean it. I thought, Lord, I've been waiting a long time to be with Mary Jane. <laughs> Don't come back now. That's going to mess the whole thing up, right? If you don't long for the second coming of Christ, it may be because of something like this, right? It's not that you don't want to see Jesus return, but you can't sit around doing nothing in the meantime. So you make plans. And you hope that those plans don't get disrupted sometimes. The fact is, the second coming of Christ just isn't good news to people whose lives are pretty good, like most of us. But for people whose lives are hard, and that's most of the people in the world, the second coming of Jesus is good news indeed. Look again in verse 26. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. You know what's going on here? Wait a minute, I'm looking at the wrong one. Verse 26, not 28. I'm, I'm uh, bumped ahead. Hang on with me. Verse 26 is, They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. A vision of Jesus as Superman? <laughs> flying up in the clouds? That's not exactly it. Literally what's said here is that Jesus is coming with the clouds, with power and with great glory. He's bringing them as he comes. And you go, why should I get excited about Jesus bringing clouds? Well, if you're living in Texas in the summertime and it's been a drought, uh, Clouds might meet rain, but that's not what's going on here at all. You remember when Moses dedicated the temple in the Old Testament. What happened? The tabernacle, not the temple. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's that the glory of the Lord in a cloud filled the temple. So it's been suggested in light of that that what verse 26 is talking about isn't Jesus Superman. It's Jesus bringing the glory back. The glory that Adam and Eve knew in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. And he makes it clear what this means in verse 28, the verse that I read just a moment ago about the fig tree, right? My parents used to have a fig tree in their backyard. It lost its leaves early every fall. And when they were gone, it was bare until next spring. 
Jesus is saying, my coming again is going to be like the ultimate springtime. I'm bringing warmth after cold. I'm bringing light after darkness. I'm bringing life after death. The point of the second coming isn't to yank us out of here. It is to fix the things that are here, to redeem and restore everything that has been lost and broken by sin. No more injustice, no more death, no more disease. Just like the song we were singing a few minutes ago was, no more die, crying or pain. And that, I want to assure you, is good news to people whose lives are hard. Cornelius Plantiga teaches at the Calvin Seminary in Michigan. He put it like this. If you're a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt or a slave in Antebellum, Mississippi, you want your redemption. If you're an Israelite exiled in Babylon or a Kosovar exiled in Albania, you want your redemption. If you are a woman in modern India, it doesn't matter which caste you belong to, and your husband or fiancé doesn't think your family has come up with a big enough dowry, and if he locks you in a closet for three months, or calls up his buddies and threatens to have them rape you and then kill you, I say, if you are a modern Indian woman in such a predicament, you want redemption from wicked sexism, and you want it from every fiber of your being. According to Scripture, the person who wants redemption wants the kingdom of God, whether she knows it or not. And the coming of the kingdom depends on the coming of the king, the one who will return with power and with great glory. However we are to understand this apocalyptic event, whatever form it takes, the second coming of Jesus Christ means to a Christian that God's righteousness will at last fill the earth. If you don't yearn for the second coming of Christ, it may be because you live in a bubble. You are unaware of how bad the troubles of the world are or simply don't care. Here in Mark 13, Jesus is calling you to pop the bubble, to long for his return. He says to stay awake, to stay on guard. Of course, that begs a question. What does staying awake and standing on guard look like? Os Guinness is an extraordinary man. If you haven't heard, met, if you haven't heard of Oz before or read any of his books, Google them. They'll pop up here. He's fond of telling this story. About 230 years ago, the Connecticut House of Representatives was in session when their meeting was disrupted by a total eclipse. And the darkness frightened the members of the Connecticut House. They thought it signaled the coming of the Lord. Some of them wanted to adjourn. Some of them wanted to pray. They wanted to prepare for Jesus' return. After all, it does say, Jesus says, that the sun will be darkened on that day, right? But the Speaker of the House rose 
and he said, we are all upset by the darkness, and some of us are afraid, but the day of the Lord is either coming or it is not. And if it is not, there is no reason to adjourn. But if it is, I would rather be found doing my duty. And he asked that candles be brought so business could continue. I like his logic. He didn't say what I saw on a bumper sticker a long time ago. Jesus is coming. Look busy. He said we should be found doing our duty. Now, the question is, what does that mean? In verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, we're like servants who have been left in charge of our master's house. We don't know when he's coming back, so we have to be ready for his return at all times. He's emphasizing two things. The second coming is certain, and the second is you can't possibly know when it's going to be. And holding on to both of those things at the same time is supposed to change you. You see how? Let me imagine. You're flirting with the idea of indulging in your favorite private sin. And you're telling yourself, no big deal. No one else will know. <laughs> I'm saved by grace after all. How do you know the Lord will not appear at that moment? And what difference would it make to you if he did? C.S. Lewis puts it much more eloquently. He writes, precisely because we cannot predict the moment, we must be ready at all moments. Our Lord repeated this practical conclusion again and again, as if the promise of the return had been made for the sake of this conclusion alone. Watch! Watch is the burden of his advice. I shall come like a thief. You will not, I most solemnly assured you, you will not see me approaching. If the householder had known at what time the burglar would arrive, he would have been ready for him. If the servant had known when his absent employer would come home, he would never have been found drunk in the kitchen. But they didn't, nor will you. Therefore, you must be ready at all times. The point is surely simple enough. The schoolboy does not know which part of his Virgil lesson he will be made to translate. That's why he must be prepared to translate any passage. The sentry does not know at what time an enemy will attack or an officer inspect his post. That's why he must keep awake all the time. The return is wholly unpredictable. There will be wars and rumors of wars and all kinds of catastrophes as there always are. Things will be, in that sense, normal. The hour before the heavens roll up like a scroll. You cannot guess it. If you could, one chief purpose for which it was foretold would be frustrated. And God's purposes are not so easily frustrated as that. Looking and waiting 
for the second coming is supposed to change the way that we live now. It should also change the way that we respond to the evils that are done to us. Think about it for just a moment. If you're like most of us, your first response when someone else hurts you is to sit down on the judgment seat of the world. It is, after all, empty. We know that it's empty because Jesus hasn't come back to sit on it yet. And we know that it's empty because people keep doing horrible things to us and getting away with it. So, when someone hurts us, we sit down in Jesus' place on the judgment seat. After all, we know what they deserve, and we are ready to make sure that they get it. That's the way it works with sinful people. But watching and waiting for the second coming is supposed to change that. Think about it. Think of someone that you know who someone else that you know is angry with. And when that person comes to you and talks about the person that he or she is angry with, you ever have a hard time recognizing the person you know and the person that they're describing? Because the fact of the matter is, when someone hurts us, we have a tendency to demonize them, right? We play up their faults and we play down ours. A little Lewis again here, pardon me. This is the screw tape letters for those of you who are utterly unfamiliar with it. It's letters from a senior demon to a junior demon schooling him in how to tempt people. And he says it like this. When two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each has tones of voice and expressions of face which are almost in, unendurably irritating to the other. Work on that. Bring fully into the consciousness of your patient that particular lift of his mother's eyebrows which he learned to dislike in the nursery and let him think that she knows how much he dislikes it. Let him assume that she is doing it to annoy him. If you know your job, he will not notice the immense improbability of this assumption. And of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her. And he cannot see or hear himself, so this is usually pretty easily managed. Fact is, we love to judge one another. And the fact is, we are very poor judges. We forget that only God deserves to sit on the throne. Only He knows enough to sit on the judgment seat. And most of all, only He can put things right. We need to remember to stay off the throne, to pray for the coming of the Lord, to yearn for His judgment, which is a hard thing to do, practically. On one hand, if there is no judgment, 
there is no hope for the world. I was in Ukraine in 1996 on a missions trip. I had a guy who was an interpreter for me. We had to sit down the night before and go through everything I was going to say because if the interpreter doesn't understand what you're saying, he's never going to be able to interpret it in a way in which anybody else can understand it, right? So we got into an argument about the goodness of God. And he says, if God exists, he cannot be good. And then he went on to tell the story. Back in the 1930s in Ukraine, in the midst of one of the coldest winters on record, Joseph Stalin dealt with the political upheavals by closing the borders and shipping most of the food out. The result of which was his grandparents, along with millions of other people, starved to death. Now, in his mind, he thought Joseph Stalin got away with that and that God let him do it because Stalin died comfortably in his own bed. And when I opened the passages of Scripture that speak to him of God's judgment of sin, he brightened up. And he said, I can worship a God like that. Do you understand why? If there is no judgment, then injustice rules forever. On the other hand, if there is justice, there is no hope for me. As the psalmist says in 130, O Lord, if you keep a record of sins, who can stand? Francis Schaeffer used to talk about, imagine if you have a recording device around your neck from the day you're born, and all it ever records are the times you say or think, looking at somebody else, that's wrong, you shouldn't do that, right? And then when judgment day occurs, imagine you are not judged by the Ten Commandments or the character of Christ as a standard, that all God does is to play your own statements about you shouldn't do that. Who will pass that test? Not me. Here's the problem. There's no hope for the world without judgment. But there is no hope for me with it. Therefore, how dare we yearn for it? Only one way. Verse 24, Jesus says that on that day, the day of judgment, the sun and the moon will be darkened. In Mark chapter 15, 33, on the day that Jesus died, it was dark from noon till three. Matthew adds, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the heavens themselves were shaken. Why? Because Good Friday, the day that Jesus died, was judgment day. On the cross, he took the judgment that we deserve. That's what his first coming is all about. And because of this, his second coming, his coming to judge, will be different. Do you understand why? Revelation chapter 5, John the Apostle writes, 
of a vision of the throne of God, God's judgment seat. And standing on the throne is a lamb standing as if it had been slain. In the end, our judge will be the person who took his judgment on himself. And if that's not a recipe for a good trial, I don't know what one is. The Heidelberg Catechism is an old German Reformed statement of faith, beautifully written, much more eloquently written than the Westminster Confession in all sorts of ways, puts it like this. What comfort is it to you that Christ shall come to judge the quick and the dead? And the answer is that in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I looked for the very same person who offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as my judge from heaven who shall cast his and all my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me and all his chosen ones into himself, into heavenly joys and glory. That's the gospel. Trust the judge's drudge. Yearn for the second coming. And watch because he's coming soon. Let's pray. Dear God, I confess how very impatient I am and how very difficult it is for me to wait patiently for your return. I pray, Father, teach us how to wait working now for the righteousness that you will bring to stay off the judgment throne ourselves. And most of all, to trust in the work of Jesus, the lamb that was slain for us. Bless us now, I pray, as we celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection. We pray it in his name. Amen.